Hello and welcome to the Still Figuring It Out podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Sigmund, and I don't have it all figured out, but I'm on an adventure to keep learning and keep growing, and I invite you to join me. I am so excited to continue this conversation with Alex Marshall. Last time on the podcast, we were listening to him share some of the reasons why a person may uh, start to struggle with addiction. And he was sharing from his personal experience that it's a complex thing. It's a lot of different things that might lead someone down that road. And today, we're going to get a sneak peek into what it's like to be in the prison system. So if you've ever wondered what that was like, um, he's going to share a little bit about his experiences there. And as we know, with any life, with any story, with any big issue like uh, the prison system and this type of thing, it's not, there are no simple right or wrong, uh, easy answers. It's so complex and we'll, we'll hear a lot of Uh, the complexities in his story. So I just want to give a a warning. I still am figuring all of this out when it comes to interviewing people and the best setup. So one of the things that I'm learning is it may not be the best idea to set up a microphone out in the outdoors in the mountains when it's windy and there's birds and there's dogs. Uh, So you may hear a lot of background noise, but I guarantee that Alex's story will keep your attention because uh, he just has a fascinating uh, experience that uh, thankfully for all of us, he's willing to be vulnerable enough to share uh, about some of these really difficult experiences. So Fasten your seatbelts. Here is part two of Alex's story. Well, Alex, thank you so much again for uh, being willing to continue this conversation. Uh, Last time we were really talking about uh, your past with uh, addiction and really kind of, uh, at least for you, your story of what were some of the underlying issues and some of the things that kind of led to that. Yeah. And, you know, some of the things that we named were a lot of this need to belong, a need to be seen, a need to fit in, and then uh, really a need to be able to cope with maybe hard feelings or, um, you know, with dealing with maybe shifts in mood or dealing with things that have happened to you in your life that you didn't know how to feel about. And so you were, you know, so I really appreciate how vulnerable you've been to share um, all of those things. And and we see how it's typically not just just one thing, but a a combination Mm -hmm. of of a lot of things. Um, And so today I really want to focus on um, kind of your, your, your background with criminal activity and how addiction kind of led you to that uh, and your experiences in in prison and serving time there and uh, you can you can fill people in on what what that's like and <laughs> and then you can tell us you know, how hard it is after after coming out so so first of all uh, how is it that you know you you went from you know struggling with with the with this addiction or, or maybe that getting worse and worse when do you kind of reach a breaking point of choosing to do something that you know is illegal. Well, of course, you're already get doing some illegal things with the drugs, but then when does it be, when do you kind of go towards um, doing more kind of criminal activity? How did that happen for you, at least? Yeah, so it's definitely was um, as, you know, your addiction progresses and, um you know, my own finances were, you know, exhausted. Uh, of course, you know, I started using, and of course, I wasn't working. Um, and uh, I had exhausted, you know, everything that I personally had. And so I really resorted to family members uh, as far as a means of getting money. 
and that also worked for a little while it, um, you know probably several years and um, but it just continues to progress until either you know they realize that you're using the money for drugs and um, stop giving it to you or you know at least they try to give some type of uh, pushback on that you know it's uh, really easy for family members to know you're using but continue to enable you because they don't want you out committing criminal acts and uh, mm. my grandmother still tells me all the time that uh, she knew that I was using the money for drugs but she didn't want me out stealing for it wow. once I had been in trouble That's tough. And I was stealing money from my grandparents. I would uh, know where they would keep their money at. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this in our last meeting, but she at one point in time uh, said, stop stealing. Stealing makes you a thief. And had drawn a picture of a man behind bars. And so she had showed me that before I ever like got put in that position. Um, so... You know, um, but she said she and you know continued to enable me because she she was afraid of what I would do if that money was cut off, and eventually got to the point where that money was cut off, and uh, that that resource was completely exhausted, and and so I I've just uh, slowly uh, built up enough courage I think to steal for the first time, and the first time is the hardest. It's always harder harder to start the first time, even though I was doing drugs and selling drugs uh you know i knew that was a crime um but I, I was just doing that to you know live that lifestyle and just like you know i was using that that money just to you know continue to feed my habit somehow i was able to make that okay because i did know morally that i was wrong i knew that you know the difference between right and wrong um, but i worked up enough courage uh to commit my first act of like stealing outside of the family where you're you know then you're starting to tread water there and um eventually that once i built up the courage to do it the first time the second time was easier and the third time it just got easier and easier to where i just kind of built a wall like a, a wall i built a wall uh kind of you know in my mind like my consciousness i just like blocked that out uh, i didn't feel bad about it anymore and um, you know later on into my addiction when uh, you know things were you know at their worst point i was literally out you know all day breaking into cars and or finding cars and finding ways to steal things and that was like you know how i lived you know for a, a couple of years like that was my whole life so so uh it seems like what you're experiencing is that because that addiction is so strong, you you can't even really think or focus on anything else. So you're you almost lose that moral backbone or even the ability to think rationally because you're just so hyper focused on that next. Absolutely, hit. yeah. So it's like um, I call them crimes of opportunity, um, and like you said, I. I had gotten jobs here and there. They would last for like a month or two. I worked at restaurants serving. I did, you know, different things. I would. My father was still working construction, and I'd work with him. But uh, you know, some days I would, you know, be so like hungover or, or so high that I would just sleep in the truck all morning, and then just helping for like half a day. And you know, so you know, of course, he didn't want to deal with that, and. Uh, but anyways, yeah, I, I got to the point where I, I couldn't even do stuff like that because I, I every ounce of my, you know, energy was focused on getting high because it can your tolerance builds up and it builds up faster than you could ever imagine. Mm -hmm. And it takes so much more and more to get the same effect. And mm -hmm. so that tolerance builds up. And so you need the the need is there. You need more and you need more and you need more to feel the same until you get to the point where you just need enough not to be sick. And that's when wow. things get out of control uh, because you'll do anything uh, you have to 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 not be sick. And uh, if someone that's listening has went through opiate withdrawals, you probably know what I'm talking about. Like opiate withdrawals, um, or you know. 
they you literally feel like you're dying. Um, and and I, from what I know about withdrawal is it's it actually it, it could happen. People have probably died from certain withdrawals, oh, right? I, absolutely. It, it's so hard on your body. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you could have a heart attack. You could have blood pressure is the really like when you go through medical uh, medical detox. Um, like they definitely, uh, you know, your blood pressure is something they check like every like three hours, and so uh, yeah, and um, I'm sure your the your temperature stays like about 103 or something like I'm somewhere around there. I'm not exactly sure, but uh, and then you know, of course you like your body basically just like shuts down, and it depends on like what you're using for how many days or how long like. You know, if you've been on opiates for 10 years, like your withdrawal symptoms are probably going to be way worse than somebody's been on for 10 days. But I knew, like, from my addiction experience and, like, times that I tried to get clean or I would go through a detox, uh, but still didn't have the coping mechanisms to deal with life and would resort back to use, I knew, like, I would, you know, use once and I then wouldn't use it again for a couple of days. And I'd use two days in a row. But I knew, I always knew that three day. I called it the three day mark. After I used three days in a row, like that sickness starts back up to where you, where I'd have to have it. And so, I would try to like, you know, not hit that mark or you know, try everything I could to, um, you know, stay sober. But I just didn't have the appropriate, you know, tools or uh, the appropriate treatment um, at that point to be able to, you know, cope with. Uh, you know the trauma and just um, everything that I had went through at that point in time in life was just overwhelming for me. At what point did you start kind of running in with the law and then how did that lead to uh, your experience with the criminal justice system? Right so um, I think I caught my first charge when I was 18 um, but my grandmother was the elected county court clerk in Rome County and um, she was the elected clerk for over 30 years. She was like, you know, a well, I don't know what the best word to describe, but a very uh, well-known uh, member of the community, upstanding citizen. And so I got a lot of breaks. Um, so I would, of course, go to jail and uh, it, hire a lawyer and it would kind of get swept under that all the probation officers were in the same courthouse the probation office is in the same courthouse that my grandma worked in um so i kept getting breaks in roan county where i lived and i think that also hindered me because i thought then i felt like i was untouchable like you know you know the worst thing they're gonna do is you know give me probation so um I, that was my first run-ins, and I, a couple of times I spent a few days in jail, maybe a weekend. Uh, I think the longest was like a week because I had a hold on me or something like that. Uh, um, but the, the, um, I never got consequences that were equal to what I was doing. I never got like that uh, all, all moment that some people might get when... Uh, you know, committing a crime and the, you know, consequences are enough for them to stop. Uh, mine just weren't enough. Um, I got a lot of breaks. And so um, it continued to build up my criminal record, my criminal history. Um, so when I broke, uh, broke the law outside of the county that I lived in, really outside of that district because Rome County was such a small county, there was like three surrounding counties in that district, but I eventually led to me breaking the law in Knoxville, Tennessee, and Knox County, and that's really where the problems started, and I, that's when I kind of headed down the road uh, to eventually leading to prison, was getting in trouble outside of my hometown. Gotcha. So it's so interesting that you say basically you kind of were in a, a, a place of, of kind of privilege you had family in the system so you got a lot of breaks but that actually you think probably didn't do was wasn't good you no. almost needed uh to, to be, have some harsher punishment you think I, at, that, well, at that point at that point yeah i felt like that there there should have been some type of intervention uh of course you know a lot of people go to jail and their families are like, you're there, you know, deal with it. And that's a wake-up call for them. Uh, or on the other hand, my, my parents are, would bomb me out or my grandparents would bomb me out. 
uh, we did eventually get to the point where you know they were over it but it was just too late the um, though the charges were just uh, there was too many in two different too many different places and um, when I caught that uh, broke the law in Knox County caught a, a charge there um, they put me on like the the most uh, intense probation community corrections type uh, program they had and they told me I had to live in a halfway house and I think I made it there maybe four days before I got kicked out mm-hmm. and then failed a drug test and uh, that was it I was basically on the run and until they caught me and is that when you went to prison yes yeah so that that's what led to uh, Knox County um, I got like a two-year sentence from them and then I, I was in the custody of TDOC and so I had to go to court to like two other counties that I still had charges in and once I was already in prison they just continued to add time like each county gave me two years and two years and it I ended up I ended up with a six-year sentence and I thought I was only gonna be gone for like seven months and 14 days which ended up turning into five years and eight and a half months it's so what did you said TDOC uh, Tennessee Department of Corrections okay gotcha so you were in in what what was the name of the place you um, so I actually started really close to here they first sent me to Northeast Correctional Complex which is in Mountain City okay so uh, I started my time there, and I was probably there uh, for about a year and a half, somewhere along the lines of about a year and a half, and I continued getting in trouble there, hmm. and uh, they tried to put me in, the, they had a, a, they call it the drug program, um, they have those type of programs in prison, I, I'm sure if someone's ready to make a change and like serious about it, and uh, serious enough that you know, they they could find some help there somehow, but the system's just, uh, you know, the way it's set up, that's it, just so, there's so much drugs in, in prison, it's just mm-hmm. like the availability of, you know, of drugs there, it's just, it's a unbelievable of you know, so, circumstance. So, so yeah, I, I think I would assume if you were in prison that you, that that's good because you can't use, but you're saying that actually often it, is, is it even more? It's way more uh, present in prison than it ever is on the street because uh, because your next door neighbor has it. Like, huh. ever, you know, you, there's pods and, you know, 64 cells in a, in a pod and upstairs and a downstairs. Out of those 64 cells, there's going to be a marijuana man in there, a coke man, a heroin man, uh, like every drug you can think of, every type of contraband that you can think of is uh, openly available in prisons. They're well aware of it. They catch it all the time. It's not something they uh, definitely want to uh, like put out there. It's not something they're like announcing. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's or- there's a lot of organized crime um, and a lot of... Uh, organization that goes into uh, the way they I'm sure they get some of that stuff in there but you know cell phones and drugs are always if you can afford them they're always there Wow so and uh, you spent time in, in how many different places um, four before I left okay um, so that I went from uh, northeast to uh, West High which is out in Memphis and then I went to Northwest Correctional Complex which is like the furthest northwest tip of Tennessee I think it's Tiptonville Tennessee and then I ended up um, my last the last prison I went to which was by far the worst was uh, South Central Correctional Complex uh, which is in Middle Tennessee and it's actually a CCA prison, which is a pro- private for profit prison, hmm. uh, and that's and that was the first CCA I've been to. I think Tennessee has what is, like what four does that or five. stand for? CCA. Um, I'm trying to remember, but the the company actually went bankrupt, and hmm. so um, they changed the name, and um, I, I can't remember the, the. But they're the biggest one, and not just America. They own prisons in like several different countries, and. Um, you'd be amazed at how many are, are, are in, you know, uh, in your state. And the people that run those prisons uh, are, you know, also lobbyists. And so they're promised a certain percentage, like, uh, 
you know, of beds, you know, they the, the state promised to keep them at 90% or 95% capacity. And so if those, those places, if, as soon as someone leaves, they that's the first place that they're going to make sure it's filled up because they have that set up with that um, prison system. So, so these prisons, they have like CEOs, they have people who are making money by keeping people incarcerated yeah it's basically like herding cattle but they're herding people we say that in there and uh, I mean the the whole way it's set up it's like you're just a number and so like you're just you have an armband and they I didn't have one of those until I got to the CCA prison and I, that's how I felt like I just felt like I was like on a cow farm and Wow. I was number uh, one oh five two seven eight, I think. Wow! And so and she yeah. remember that, that was that, yeah. that. At that point, you were no longer Alex Marshall. No, you were just a number. A number. Just and, a number. And you, yeah. And at, the, at these prisons, if if they are profiting off of people being there, how much is how many initiatives or programs are there really trying to help people yeah. recover? So you know they're. I went through two different uh, treatment programs, uh, or you know, at least done them for a couple of months. If you fail a drug test, they don't say like, "Okay, you definitely got a problem. We're going to continue to help you." <laughs> if you fail a drug test, they kick you out immediately. Wow! Uh, back out to the compound is what they call like just like where the, everybody else is, and so you know, they definitely have some type of they they'll call it recovery. Uh, pod, uh, but they get federal grants and for that uh, to run those treatment uh, programs, as they call them, in prison, and so they keep those full as well. Because for every person that uh, is in there, they get a certain amount of money, and so uh, federal grant money to treat them, as you, I guess, as you would call it. But I mean, it, it's, there's really nothing going into it. There's no. Uh, it, only help they're providing is separating you from the compound uh, where you only are you know seeing those people like at, when you go to the gym or go to the yard or go to the chow hall um, but it's no only difference is you're just living in a different unit gotcha wow. so you, you're talking about how how organized it is within the prison system and I know um, you know, t tell me a little bit about the gang situation there and yeah. why people uh, seek that out and, and why that so might it, even be important yeah. for survival for, for some people. So it's really uh, like a predator-prey um, scenario. So, um, I know, I, I know like every prison in Tennessee I went to was pretty much the same. Like you're either predator or prey. And so um, you really got to pick which one you're going to be like if you're going to like stand up for yourself or you know if not like it, you you're better off just not having anything like if if you ordering commissary or if you have anything uh and you don't want to like be have any uh um i guess i don't know how to correctly say it but i I don't want to say something bad on the podcast. I guess if you don't want to be approached with a scenario that you can't get out of uh, without defending yourself, I guess the best thing you could do would just be like live off of what they feed you, not order commissary, and uh, you know that might work. But you're going to be approached to hold something for somebody because uh, then they're going to think you don't have money, and like there's going to they're they're going to. Uh, some point try to involve you in some type of uh, of the, the gang activity um, you know not holding knives for them or you know holding uh, their drugs for them you know holding whatever for them you know if you're not a member of a, of an organization one of the organizations is going to try to involve you in what they're doing in some type of way and so you know you're taking the fall for them if they come do a whole unit search they lock you down they have kind of like a green team SWAT team that searches everybody's cells and pulls you out uh, but you're holding all their knives and really people get really creative at hiding spots and they don't always get found but you know if they do you're taking a file for them and if something goes uh, like if they get into it with another organization and uh, you know they'll you know come down and you have to dispense those to them at any time and so 
uh, you know, it's really, I, I, I would uh, guess it would be really hard for someone to completely, like, uh, not be ready to stand up for yourself and say, or be able to say no and stay away from any type of gang activity. They run the prisons, and you you know when you get to that prison within the first 24 hours, who has the which organization has the most people, who which one has the most drugs, which organization really run in that prison, um, and you you figure that out really quickly. I mean, it, it almost reminds me of like when you go to college and you learn. Well, that's the that's the fraternity, that's the sorority, that's the certain different. It's like you you almost like try to figure out which club you're going to be a part of. Yeah, and and that part of that is so that people have your back. Yeah. Uh, there's a safety thing. Oh, yeah, there's definitely. So, you know, a lot of the times um, that people, you know, join an organization is because you don't want to, of course, be uh, preyed upon. In order to not be preyed upon, you you, you have need friends. You need people to have your back. Uh, the only catch of that is you got to be ready to have their back at any time. And, um, you know, there's a lot of security that goes on, not the guards and the, uh, that you would think, but within the organizations like if you go take a shower um you have to be escorted by two other members when you come out of your cell want to walk in front of you want to walk behind you you carry your shower stuff with you you never take your tennis sho- shoes or boots off you know not allowed to come out of your cell without your sandals on you have to get out of your bed as soon as they open unlock the doors in the morning like there's really strict rules some don't allow you to eat pork like you know, some of them, you have to attend Ramadan and all the, uh, the Muslim, um, you have to like respect all those, um, boundaries that they have, you know, so that just depends. Um, but yeah, it's really organized and, uh, uh, you, you would be blown away of what people are able to do in there. And, uh, yeah. Well, and, and knowing what I know about your story about really one of the reasons you, kind of got into that drug scene was this um this need of, of belonging and being a part of something yes. so yeah um so you joined a gang while you of were course, in yeah. prison and so, was that hard do you have to um, i mean i i feel like there's this kind of stereotype that in order to get join a gang you like have to kill somebody or something no, something no, crazy no. so i mean um i'm not gonna go too deep in the detail but i'll say that like of, of course uh depending on which organization they have their own rules but uh most of it's literature they call it like lit that you have to stuff that you have to know and know like on call that they're going to like teach you over a period of they'll say they call it putting you on watch and that can last a month that can last like three or four months as long as it takes for you to learn everything and once you can uh, be able to recite you know basically like a you know a a long chapter of the bible word for word basically is like and then you continue to learn more and more of of this stuff that's behind the scenes written and um you have to learn it and uh then once they uh it depends on which one but once uh you learn that stuff um then you get you do get beat in uh, (laughs) but like it's people that you uh, then beat you up for however long that organization's time is. Could be uh, 45 seconds, 90 seconds, 126 seconds, 127 seconds. There's different ones have different scenarios. Some of them don't do that. They, they. I think other ones. I'm not, sh- you know, sure of how exactly how they work, but they just bless you in. Uh, so there is organizations that don't do that, but. In my circumstance, yeah, you had yeah, there was a time where you would have like to get jumped in, and then but then they love you to death after that. So what, what's crazy to me is, I mean, w- the way you describe this, I mean, it, it reminds me of religion. Yeah. I mean, this it reminds me of joining a church. Yeah, you know, you you have a membership class, or you know, we you, you learn the theology and the I, you know, what we believe, yeah. and then there's some kind of baptism ritual i mean I'm, yeah. not, I'm, I'm not trying to say that gang activity is this holy thing but i'm saying the ritual and the the organization is very similar it is it and is. i just i never knew that that's yeah. so crazy to me um so looking back at your your time in prison they say prison changes you i mean that's something that people people say all the time 
how would you say that was true for you? Well, for me, it definitely changed me for the, uh, you know, I knew after that, after I did that time that like, I didn't want to like live that way for the rest of my life. But uh, the trauma that you experience in prison, just of like constantly having to like look over your shoulder and constantly like, you, like you, feel, you can feel someone looking at you like I could always like sense if somebody was looking in my cell, like if the guard, like you get that like sixth sense for things. Like if somebody's walking up behind you, uh, that's why I got work and stuff. I, I ask people like, no, you know, I'm not one that I don't like to be snuck up on and, and surprised like, you know, because uh, you, you develop like, uh, you know, uh, fork recall, I guess is what they call that. What's like that? Uh, just like where, uh, muscle memory, I guess, would be another way. Just like where you respond to circumstances, and like, and that trauma affects you. Where uh, you know you just uh, are always like in protection mode, or you know, it's it, sometimes you know things are life or death, and you see people lose their lives over really uh, small things. You know, twenty five dollars is not worth a man's life, but I've mm. seen man, I've seen one lose for a lot less. So. So basically, it, you you develop a paranoia of your life is at risk all the time. All the time. Yeah, and so it's really hard to try to transition from prison back to like when you get out. That's really stressful and, and brings up a lot of anxiety. Like, I, it was a good year before I think I could go to Walmart. So wow. Yeah. And um, and that constant trauma and stress. I mean, that's like. Uh, basically, you do, could you could develop PTSD pretty still in therapy for it. Yeah, so yeah. definitely, you know, some of the some people I think in prison, I think I discussed this with you the other day, but there I think ninety seven percent, ninety five percent of the people that are in prisons are in there because of their addictions or because of drugs, mm -hmm. and, um, something to do with drugs. Even if they're not, you look you can look through their criminal history. It might not be because they got caught with drugs. But the the crimes they were committing were to feed their drug habit. Mm. There might be like three to five percent of people in prison that are like, just, you know, the actual uh, bad people that don't belong like back out here on the street that are like uh, definitely uh, you know are a threat to society, a threat to communities, a, a threat to everyone. But there's definitely people in there that could be rehabilitated. Mm -hmm. um, there's people that you know, like me, that get like you can get labeled as a violent offender uh, for breaking into someone's car and stealing the wrong duffel bag, mm -hmm. you know, and those type of situations can happen um, as we just watch with mine. So yeah, yeah. So um, coming out, you said you life is harder you, because you. Um, have kind of readjusted to a different world in inside there. So what, how, I mean, what, are, I can't even imagine what are all the obstacles of trying to come back into a society. Not only um, are you probably not necessarily rehabilitated, but you, there's, there's more trauma in your life. And now you've got these labels of being a criminal. Yeah. Uh, you've got a record. So uh, you're being judged everywhere you go, I'm guessing, with applying for jobs Absolutely, and all of those yeah. things. So how, what is that like? Um, so, I mean, all of that, it, when you're first coming out, is like too much to fathom. Like you you have all these ideas and plans, but like well, as soon as you walk out of that gate, it's just you're hit with this incredible sense of like of fear. Because mm -hmm. uh, then you get institutionalized and you're used to that type of lifestyle. Like that's your life when you're there for five years and eight and a half months like that's enough time to you get uh, very very adjusted to those ways and so coming out especially with i i know the people that do you know six months in a year that they probably need help too but you know once you get past that you know year and a half two years three years four years just the more time someone spends is the more time that they have been institutionalized and and the the more they're going to be set in those ways so i, I feel like you know uh the obstacles uh, are endless and, and they continue to get bigger for you know the longer that someone's been in mm. um 
and so I think people could like that transition phase could definitely be helped with some type of like when somebody's you know due to be released in six months like if they had some type of facility set up where they could like slowly start introducing them to being around people again and uh, maybe like you know work release you know I don't know what the what the answer is because I don't know that the, they're ever going to change policy but as far as like accepting someone is coming out I feel like that you know everybody deserves a second chance third chance four chance like I mean God God would give them a chance so mm-hmm. you know it's so easy to judge someone until you've been through their shoes so mm-hmm. for me I, it's it's really easy uh, to give someone another chance because I've been there I've been on the other side um, but the the obstacles are just endless like it's hard for me to just name them but it's not just getting a job it's just like even getting a friend or mm. a girlfriend and just being around like girls in general I I think when I dated my now wife uh, of course she's uh, the only girl that I had been around for five years and eight and a half months I actually uh you know we slowly started dating um and I, I can remember just sleeping on the entire opposite side of the bed she said for at least like the first six months and uh just really strange you know so um i guess it's just everything feels strange everything feels uh just doesn't feel right because you're just you're thrown back into a society a functioning society that's functioning different you're just set in ways and um, your mind is is tuned in differently and um, depending on how much time you do I mean I would almost say anybody that's done over a year would need some type of therapy or uh, just to be reintroduced and you know slowly try to uh, just put yourself back in the community definitely a church you know is a great way to make good solid friends and find you know a good support network that and men you can trust um it took me a while to find that but once i found that i started to come out of my shell uh, but i came out of prison still an addict right. on the way home i stopped and bought some drugs from wow. someone that somebody from prison introduced me to and so i only had more drug connections wow. more organized crime connections could get the drugs for cheaper and more of them so like you know really the a lot, a lot i learned a lot of valuable lesson life lessons in prison i learned that what i value is a, a cost of a man's life and what someone else you know might not have that same value hmm. the value that i have for one dollar and the value for another man's dollar might be different some people you know uh, for one dollar will like willing to risk their life or willing to take your life and so some people are never going home you have to realize like in the prison system no matter if you're doing two years five years ten years or if someone has five life sentences you're all in you're all in the same pod you're all together um they talked about doing some type of systematic like uh separation of based on time and even they talked about people under like 25 and under um, separating them but the younger people are the most dangerous because they've come in feeling like they got something to prove Mm. it's almost like a privilege to go to prison for uh, because they're uh, in in the organized crime um, a a good way to climb the ranks of the uh, organized crime is to go to prison Um, Mm. uh, you definitely can can gain uh, status in um, your organization a lot faster in prison than on the street, and so it's a privilege for some people to go, and wow. they're happy to be there. I've never, I've never heard that. That's crazy. Well, and it, it strikes me too that you said you came out of prison. You know, that wasn't a. Even though you knew the reason you were in there is because of your addiction, sucking the life out of you and leading you to, to crime you that wasn't a deterrent for you if anything it it made you it, it gave you more, more connections and mm-hmm. access to drugs it it, yeah. it almost fueled your addiction more it did it, it definitely did um even though i knew that drugs is why i was there drugs was the only thing i had to numb that pain wow. from being away from my family watching everybody else go through their 20s going through college and uh, so I, of course I was broken hearted and of course I hurt mm. I know that now I know what was bothering me now because I, I have those coping skills but at the time I didn't um, but I was just trying to numb that pain 
Wow. Of just watching everybody, you know, grow up, watching Tessie uh, grow up. And I got visits on the weekends. I uh, would, you know, you, you get contact visits and you get to hang out together. Uh, up here at Northeast, they let you cook out in the summertime for a couple months together with your family. So, you know, there is privileges for being, uh, you know, but you have to also uh, not have any write-ups. And so, um, you know, I did get... That some of those privileges until, until I didn't, you know, so mm-hmm. some, that stuff can be stripped away from you as well. But um, I, it really just de- depends. But for my situation, man, I, I definitely um, wanted to change, but there, there's they didn't have the tools, they didn't have the resources in there to really help someone. Um, they don't have, you know, psychiatrists. They do to prescribe medications, but not that have enough time to meet you one on one and make some actual progress because they have 2,600 inmates that they're trying to, uh, you know, oversee. And they have, you know, one doctor or two doctors for that whole prison. So it's quite impossible for them to give you uh, give you what you need. There's just not enough manpower to possibly begin to really ha- help someone, you know, break down and, uh, you know, develop the coping skills and mechanisms that uh, are really important for them to be able to go back into society and deal with you know trauma and childhood and you know whatever brought them there there's just not enough resources right and so it seems like prison really is mostly about punishment and removing you from society rather than uh, helping you recover or helping you uh, have the skills to come back into society. Absolutely. Everybody use the, uses the name rehabilitation in prison, but there's absolutely no rehabilitation going on. Uh, maybe the 1%. We, I've heard that, that uh, terminology used a lot, the one percenters. Okay. I guess you could use that pretty well in prison. It's the same same scenario. The one, the 1% might be able to get enough out of it, but um, it would once you're there any long term um, time, you you just you start to develop that those those things that we were talking about where you're just all the time it's like you're in survival mode and so um, it, there's nothing there to prepare you for that release and there's nothing the resources are just not available to to really help someone. They have one chaplain assigned to each prison and they will make sure you have. Uh, whatever religious reading material to help you with getting uh, a Bible or uh, whatever religion uh, someone has. There's one chaplain assigned to each prison. They're also the ones that are in charge of like um, sending special dots in to the warden to get signed if you don't if your religion doesn't allow you to eat pork. So they they have to do that. Um, there's several other um, stuff that the chaplains are assigned, and so they're they're you know overworked too and don't have enough time to really spend um they try to set up events i've I've met some really good chaplains that really wanted to make an impact and it's like and have asked and i've heard them say like what can i do to help you guys and uh, because there is some good church services that come in from the street and they come once a week and preach and do sermons but the stigma in prison is and i'm just going to use the terms they use is like say, only people go to church services, child molesters, and I'm just going to use the a term of uh, people that are gay. And so, if you're in an organization, uh, de- they de- definitely uh, are going to say say something to you if you're going to church and you think you're like, um, I I know it sounds crazy, but believe it or not, that's like a rule. Uh, you're not allowed to like uh, fornicate with a man and. Um, at least once a week, twice a week, I see some. I would see somebody in a organization uh, uh, getting beat out and pushed to the back to to protective custody because they get caught messing with a, a another man and uh, or some of them identify as women in prison. So, but yeah, there's a lot of that going on. So you don't want to be labeled or have a certain label on you. So there's a stigma on going to church services unless. It's one of the church services that are bringing in the food. Then everybody goes if they're having these big dinners, and they might 
there, there's probably you know 200 inmates uh, they, they'll do like four different uh, have four different uh, times to go for for, uh, for the different pods so that everybody can go but everybody goes to those and that's like at Christmas time and other holidays gotcha and the churches provide the food and uh, they also pass out like cookies and uh, some hot special hygiene items around Christmas and they try to do that and that but that was mostly here in Mountain City once I started getting out towards West Tennessee a lot less and less of that mm. gotcha so what um, how how did you begin to turn your life around I mean it's just with, with so much uh, in your life um, so many so many things that didn't help you yeah <laughs> uh, how, you know what I'm sure it was also a combination of things but absolutely it was absolutely the combination of things so uh, I met Kara again I didn't meet Kara we went to high school together but I started seeing Kara mm -hmm. and um, she uh, noticed that of course I got to a point where she noticed that I was just a, a flat out back into fully full full-fledged addiction and she uh, wasn't willing to uh, accept that. That wasn't something that she was going to jeopardize her recovery. Um, uh, I'm saying that on here. A lot of people might not know that, but she's got over five, six, almost, maybe almost seven years clean now. But she, so she knew how, kind of what she was dealing with. She had some of the tools. Um, first thing I think that helped was I got out of my parents house and moved away from that town I tried that before but not with the combination of things that came behind that we tried Durham first I think Durham was the worst eight months of my life I will say that for sure it was definitely a combination of uh, getting out of that uh, changing people places and things um, I had help uh, you know Kara really uh, had like a zero tolerance uh, and was able to really like put everything together I thought I was like the best manipulator secret person mm. in the world uh, but every move I made she was like two steps ahead and so and I cared enough about her that like I would give in and whenever she would say like okay we're this is what we're gonna do or you you know I'm going and so I cared enough there was enough moral, uh, I don't know what you call it, but like morality, uh, maybe, or there was enough, I had enough compassion. And, One, and love for her. Love for her to, to like, uh, to at least try. And so I kept trying, and at first it was just like a week, and then it turned into maybe two weeks at a time, then I got to where I could make it a month, and then... Uh, then it was like the only time I would relapse is when we go visit my family in Tennessee you know, we cut that out and that mm. so um, and that was August the 28th of 2019 and then I came to Faith Ridge about August the 28th of I think some exact day. it's that weekend of the 28th is when I came to Faith Ridge and that was the last time I got high on um, any like illicit substances like that wow. so uh, and then, of course, I found the church and found you and found uh, that support. And um, yeah, I had just gotten arrested and released uh, also for the charges that I caught here. And I cared enough uh, about my family, and I was scared that I, enough that I was going to go back to prison for a long time and not be a part of Nadia's life and not be a part of Kara's life. And I was like, if, if I'm ever going to make a change and try, like, this is the time. Like, there's there's not going to be another time. That, I don't have that time. And so uh, I called Daymark, uh, and it was a wonderful resource. And they have, like, a, you know, can help you with dual diagnosis outpatient here in uh, Boone. They don't have an inpatient center here. They do another county. But if you need to go inpatient, they have the resources to send you somewhere. But... Um, it was and dual just, diagnosis means just multiple things going on. Yeah, so a lot of rehabs are adapting that, and I hope all of them are. And that's treating both mental health and the addiction. Gotcha. Because there's, I don't, I haven't met one person with addiction that doesn't suffer from some type of mental health issues, and that includes trauma and PTSD, and mm. that's the main problem that I, I hear and see that people are suffering from is 
some type of trauma, some type of hurt that they're trying to, you know, cover up and that led them to drugs. And mm. um, that's that's usually the start. Well, it, it, it's it's beautiful because it sounds like you you finally, you know, by having this you know, Kara, this person who you love so much, and then a daughter on the way, you, it is almost like you finally realize that your life, you, you have now an opportunity to be about something bigger than just yourself. Yeah. And it's it's making a family of your own. Mm-hmm, and absolutely. And uh, I, I was making those, uh, telling you, those months and two months at a time of, of sobriety. Um, but I was missing God, and that was the like the miss, final missing piece. Uh, you know that I came to find out that even though I knew God was out there, that rededicating my life to to God and making that change and having that person to turn those things over to or begin that journey of trying to relieve myself of some of that weight I was carrying and turn mm-hmm. it over to God, and that was the beginning of that journey, and everything slowly got easier and easier and you were that. and you were ha- you actually were getting services from Daymark you were in therapy you were doing steps oh yeah so I, of course I, I was attending NA meetings uh, none of this was court ordered um, you know I did all this on my own while I was out on bond but uh, um, I almost had that almost gave me more resources um, because of they mark deals a lot with the court system here in Watauga County they have a really good setup and I I think that like this county I've never seen people come together like I have here to try to help people that are in recovery and there's resources why because of course you can't you can't work when you're attending a you know that day mark three times a day three and a half uh, or three times a week three and a half hours at a time when you got babies and everything else going on um, so that was a difficult time, and you know, of course, we use resources like uh, uh, casting bread, and mm-hmm. uh, I mean, every available resources we could find, we were having to use. Um, but I got uh, my date moved off twice, but uh, I did graduate from Daymark around December of 2019, and. Um, they make sure before you graduate that you have the tools you need, and if you and they don't feel like you're ready, they then they're not going to graduate you. And once you do, they give you a um, even more you know things to do. Like it's a step down process, and you st- I still continue to go there, just not in the IOP program. They I have other classes available there, you know, uh, classes for different things like for trauma. Uh, they ha- they have separate uh, classes for males and females, which is sometimes important, uh, f- especially for women that are suffering from trauma from men that might not want to share around uh, other men what's going on. So like, they have the real important resources. Uh, Dave Mark did, and I really took advantage of them. And uh, then I uh, started my therapy with my now therapist after that that was recommended. And uh, beyond grateful for uh, them up there, the Blue Mountain, I think is the name of uh, the therapy center I go to. But it's um, it's just a combination of resources available and, and really taking full advantage of them. Once I got, I think like I think I was about 90 days into it. I knew that, that this was it. I was done. I, I really had my mind made up and. I remember you saying at one point you finally realized, um, you know, your life is just so much better now that yeah. you would never want to to do anything to, to jeopardize, jeopardize it. Yeah, you're and exactly it is right. still a still a one day at a time thing, right? Yeah, like you have absolutely. to be on guard so constantly. There, I had some really severe triggers at first, and like being aware of what my triggers were really important. That's really important to work the steps so you know, like what to watch out for and when to reach out to someone like all that stuff is so important and you um, did and i did that was the thing you would reach out and <laughs> yeah. that's that's huge yeah um, you wouldn't try to do it on your own no absolutely not yeah it's just too much for but if you have a good support network and you have the tools like uh you know it's i if, it, if i can do it i feel like it's possible for anyone under any circumstances because uh i mean i was in complete desperation mode and uh i had everything to, uh, to lose and uh, you know really everything to gain as well and um, 
But you know, well now and now because of all of this, you you know about all kinds of resources up here, and that's that's yeah. basically why you are doing what you're doing right now. And as um, the coordinator for the recovery ministries at at Faith Bridge, you know you know what's out there. You know what what people can can. Uh, what kind type of help yeah. and resources that people can it use definitely help to mediate people to the right resources uh and you know help people get um you know the help that they need and which I, i've built a really good rapport with uh, the therapist from day mark and uh from other resources as well and uh have a personal uh contact numbers and we you know uh we talk all the time and uh, share if we like if they've exhausted their resources they reach out to me and I do the same and I have a lot of people from Tennessee we have at least two people a week that we help get in treatment um, even down there still so um, I'm hoping that we continue to go grow at Faith Bridge and that's the goal and you know getting through this pandemic getting back inside all those things are going to help and uh, really just just continue building those relationships as the community is also meeting and trying to work together and uh all that's happening here mm-hmm. it's not happening everywhere mm-hmm. but here it's 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 really happening it's real and god's presence is known and uh it's just it's really amazing i i, I say i could i could have done it anywhere but um I, you know god brought me here god brought mm-hmm. me to, to this area god brought me to faith bridge god took me to daymark god walked me through it god's going to continue to walk me through it and so you know, um, I just it's just his journey now. I'm just living it. Well, I'm just so grateful that God brought you into my life because uh, I've I've learned so much about uh, you know just from your journey and learning you know hearing hearing about what you've been through. I did not have that perspective in my life, and yeah. and knowing uh, how to to care and be more empathetic towards other people who are. Who are struggling, and maybe even people who are labeled as uh, criminals and addicts, and all of these things. You know, um, we we might be quick to judge them and just think that they're bad people, immoral people. Right. But it, they may just be hurting people. Uh, I know that I'm growing in that way. I know you're growing in that way, and I hope that we can help other people to grow in that way. To you know, give people a chance. Everybody's deserving, and and God would give them a chance. And so. If we consider ourselves Christians, then I feel like we're only doing His work if we're, you know, loving people, not labeling. Yeah, and and loving the people who are harder to love often Definitely. is the people that we should be focused on yeah. because they need it the most. And when we do that, we're we're working, we're doing the work on ourselves. I think because it, it takes work to love the people that you don't that you don't love or that you hate. So when you're doing those things, you're definitely you're definitely putting the work in that's needed and I think it helps you grow spiritually for me it does it helps me grow spiritually and helps me continue to grow my my connection with God because the more I love the more you know the more I feel the Holy Spirit inside of me and it's just uh, the way it's worked for me and so uh, I'm just I hate to say it but like I'm thankful for the drugs I'm thankful for the prison I'm thankful for everything that's happened to me because I wouldn't be the person I am today without those things. Being able to talk openly about it is definitely hard. It's not mm-hmm. something fun to do, uh, especially about trauma or anything like that. But the only way to try to help pull that stigma uh, in society off is to talk about it. And the more mm-hmm. people talk about it, the less stigma will be attached to it and more people might feel uh, more free to try to get help. And that's, that's my goal. Well, thank you again for being so courageous and vulnerable, and you're exactly right, that we need to have more conversations like this with people for for the general public to just start changing our minds about how we see each other and how we can love each other better. And I just love that you are taking Step 12 so seriously by turning around and, and serving others, providing others with opportunities to, um, to recover in the way that you have and are and uh, it's just so awesome to see you uh, loving your family and us and the community and uh, I'm just grateful to be be your friend and, and thank you for taking all this time to, to share your story. I, I'm glad that um, of course you know we have built a wonderful friendship and uh, when I'm at Faith Bridge I feel like I'm at home and I think that that's 
real important. And I, I remember it feels like family. Like, that's how we greet each other in the parking lot. It's like, you know, it's like you're, you're, you see your mom or your, your aunt or, your, you know, whoever. And, you know, it's just, uh, I'm just so grateful to be able to have found a place where I has that type of connection. Um, I, that's what we're all about. We're definitely loving without limits. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, that's the goal. Thanks, man. Well, thank you so much for tuning in again for this podcast. And thank you, Alex, for sharing so openly, honestly, and vulnerably. And thank you for continuing to keep trying to figure it out. And what we're trying to figure out is how to be the best version of ourselves, how to be better human beings, how to be a better society. And I believe that Part of that is looking at root causes and looking at ways that we are helping or hurting our fellow human beings with these systems of, of punishment. Uh, so the more that we can ask some of these hard questions and the more we can keep staying curious, the better we will be. And please, uh, if anyone you know or if you are struggling uh, or are ready to get out of this cycle of of addiction and are just looking for a community to connect with, please reach out to us at recovery at faithbridgeumc.org and we would love to direct you to uh, some resources to a community and know that you are loved no matter who you are or what you've done and we all are still trying to figure it out. 